Hey, what's good? Just popping in with a bit of a fairly good news. So we gonna say this is better late than never, but the U.S. Census has finally decided to recognize queer and gender nonconforming folks and couples on the actual census. So if you haven't gotten the chance to fill it out yet, we gonna tell you how to get there. So we at Ergo Media encourage everybody to go to www.mycensus2020.gov or you go ahead and call 844-330-2020 since they finally decided to act right. Hello. What's up? This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of Chicago and beyond for the more equitable and creative. What we've been doing for the last couple months here in the midst of this this young pandemic is uh, we've built a series called On the Line. Uh, it's interviews with people whose work is on the front lines in various ways of helping us address, respond to, and heal uh, from COVID-19. We have a very special guest on the line with us today. Emmy Colon is here. Bruh, bruh, bruh. Yeah. Before we go any further, I just want to say that over the next 18 months or so, SoundCloud is going to be littered with new rappers named Young Pandemic. <laughs> that is coming. It is happening. It's one, a good prediction. And two, it sounds like you might have something a mix up of your sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, these all records again to me. <laughs> Damon's just remixing that board in the house TikTok song. Okay, I'm bored in the house and I'm in the house board. So, one, I'm just really excited to have you here. Obviously, it's a little bit different from, from the rest of the series, but uh, I think it's a really important conversation to have. Before we get into all that, let's start the same place that we start every week. Uh, in this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Well, thank you all for having me. And I'm really excited to dig into this conversation. Um, how is the world treating me? Right now, the world is treating me fairly okay overall. I have kind of erred on the side of not talking about this terribly much, especially on social media, because everyone has an opinion. Um, I am doing oddly well in the midst of the pandemic. And part of that is because PTSD. So like I was expecting everything to go wrong at some point, And then it did. The the anxious people and the agoraphobes have really been vindicated in this time. Like this is like, you know, I don't want to say <laughs> right. I told you so. Yeah. It, not that we were hoping, but we always thought maybe. So yeah, it's like, we were saying. it could happen. <laughs> um, and as someone keeping up on like what's happening with climate change overall, it just felt like a matter of time kind of thing. Um, so I'm doing fairly well. I like being able to self-manage and kind of map out my life. And I do oddly well with working from home. And part of that, I think, is being chronically sick has meant I have to be at home for a period of time here and there. So I've kind of adapted to fit the new world, the new reality that we're all trying to navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's given me some space to be able to better support other people that are not navigating it as well as they would like to and kind of trying to help them honor that journey. So kind of leading into that second part about what I'm kind of bringing to the world. I want people to feel more grounded. I would like to give people more information and context for what's happening in the world keep challenging the discourse around what it means to have a home funeral or to kind of map out your plan around death and dying. If that's something that we could also dig into, be more than happy to do that. And kind of shifting the mindset around a kind of individual grief to collective grief. That's always been a part of my discourse, but it's even more important to figure out what that means now that we physically have to distance so what does it mean to collectively grieve mm. as we're seeing kind of death happen in real time and also see it impact our communities? Mm. So let, let's let's do some some like intro defining here. So we didn't even really say what you do. Oh, no problem. And that's on us. Um, so you are, correct me if I'm incorrect, a death doula. Would that be the term you would choose to use for it? Or death midwife? So yeah, kind of interchangeably. Yeah. So for that term... 
what does how how would you define it and what would you define it not meeting <laughs> that people sometimes assume it does sure um a deaf midwife is able to offer emotional spiritual and practical support to their dying and the communities and I feel like a lot of people think that means that we are going to go in and take over what the funeral industry is currently doing. And on one hand, I wish we could. (laughs) On the other hand, that is a big legal battle and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, full of red tape. And state by state, you have either a lot of freedom to kind of map out what that looks like for you, or it's all in the hands of a corporation. So it all depends and you, you only really know about that when you start to try to live on the margins or try to navigate outside of that institution. So yeah. as far as like what we are able to do, we don't really replace hospice. We do kind of work in tandem. It's all about offering kind of another layer of advocacy and support and kind of being a, some people are neutral. Some people do advocate for like, do as much on your own as you possibly can. And some do kind of take more of an aggressive standpoint when it comes to communication. Some want to still be like very flowery and gentle and speak in like nice euphemisms. And I'm not that person (laughs) in my practice. (laughs) I, I may kind of gently lead people in, but eventually I say, okay, do you realize that means your mom's dying? Sometimes you need that shift back into reality because doctors are just not equipped they don't yeah. take a class about how to talk to people about death and dying. So we're kind of able to, I don't want to say infiltrate, but sneak into the cracks of what we are able to do legally to kind of push the conversation forward. Yeah. I, I have so many curiosities. This is so <laughs> um, rich and fascinating. Um, and, you know, part of our conversation is definitely, you know, hoping to focus on this moment as I'm sure what's happening right now and, you know, the tragedies that so many communities are experiencing is complicating and expanding and challenging and putting a lot of like weight on the work that you already do. Uh, But this is just like a new concept for me. And I want to like get a little bit more of that story Um, because the idea of doula-ing or midwifing has like come in my awareness in the last five or so years, as I believe like there has been a movement towards indigeneity, a movement away from colonial and neo-colonial institutional norms. Um, so within birth work and the beginning of the life cycle, uh, I think we see this a lot more. So being able to translate this notion of an advocate or a maneuver or a support system or somebody grounded in more holistic practice outside of a hospital um, makes a lot of sense. But I have no conception of like how you could have started this practice, how um, somebody in need who's probably just living their life or is about to experience this terrible or, or not even terrible all the time, but uh, most times extremely difficult experience. Um, how would they even know to reach out beyond the institutional norms? Because, you know, as an elder, my family died a few years ago. I was like, oh, I don't like any of this process, right? Like the concrete box, the, you know, the, the, the big hole, the, the, the way that the, the church and, and the funeral home made tens of thousands of dollars, like all of it just felt like a, um, a deep insult. Um, and, and was like, wow, I, I want to start thinking about what new practices could look like, but had no conception that y'all was out here getting it in dueling. Um, <laughs> and so, so that's just me trying to bring myself to like my excitement and curiosity. And I guess my, my, my question is, um, how did this work find you to, to make it more simple? Absolutely. I've kind of always been surrounded by it and not the sense that people were always dying, but my parents ever really sheltered me from it. As a young kid, there was ever really, oh, there's a funeral. We have to find a babysitter for Emmy. It was, okay, well, that's a part of life. You know, being raised Catholic, it's a it's a big, fest, you know, everything is a big deal in Catholicism, especially funerals. <laughs> so That's such a way to put it. Actually, the, the, the slogan of, the, of Catholicism, I agree, we're kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's their whole story. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I, I could probably do the digging at a later date and get more fine-tuned with it. But I would be very curious to see how much more Catholics spend on funerals than of other Christian denominations. Mm. Mm. It it is very curious to me. 
Um, what, what kind of, it just, it's a big family thing. I had lost a lot of people in a sequence. Um, you know, being from Puerto Rico, we would go often a few times a year. And for a while, it felt like every time I went a few months later, somebody I had met had died. And there was like that existential tension that I felt. And there was one point where someone that we ran into a few days later, she passed away. And that was deeply jarring, like felt very, very hallmark. Like I just saw her yesterday. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it's like that. It was deeply upsetting at the time, but we did stay long enough to, you know, be a part of the whole funeral process. And that was really a moment for me because having been a part of so many Western funerals where you wear black and you quietly cry and everyone is so polite. I've been to many white funerals that are like that. <laughs> so it felt it felt so healing and like a little bit on a spiritual level, a little bit religious, but you know, deeply healing to have the procession where we began in a church and they carried the casket of my of my aunt that had passed from like the, it's all very close. It's a small town in Puerto Rico. So we carried her all the way down to the cemetery and it was like raining and humid and we're all crying and people are just like being loud in the street, like living in their feelings about it. And even to this day, so many houses in Puerto Rico are built. So then it's wide enough to accommodate a casket because it is designed to, you may give birth in your, your house, you may, you know, get raised mm. and have a family and then die in your home. And that's just life. So it's built into the very framework, literal framework of homes in Puerto Rico. It was an incredible experience that really shook me and had me thinking about how different we could approach this. That sure, it could still be the ritual aspect of having, you know, the church involved and having you know, a procession, but that you weren't so, there wasn't so much societal pressure to be a certain way. And I just kind of gravitated towards studying the history of death after. My minor's in cultural anthropology. And oddly enough, the teacher most afraid of death is the one who taught it. <laughs> so on <laughs> one hand, great experience. On the other hand, she was scandalized that I had so many questions. She was like, she was like this is going to be an easy A for me. <laughs> Everyone's just gonna like sit up, sit up, be quiet. We're just gonna get through this curriculum, right? <laughs> and she was already a very wide-eyed woman, and then just her eye. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Looking like Stitch from Lilo and Stitch, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, oh, that poor woman. <laughs> uh, but also, how would you teach that subject if you weren't ready to talk about it? So, uh, definitely fell on me, and. Later into college, I learned about an organization called the Order of the Good Death, and I definitely became a stan in a sense where I thought, oh, that's what's correct, and that's how you you do it. And You were their first fan? They're like, whoa, we're not, <laughs> we're not used to our right. fans. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and if anything, as I went along the journey and I heard about what it actually meant to be a death midwife, I said... That works for me because I feel like for my family, I will happily midwife those people. And financially, there is a cost incurred by being like a certified death midwife. So for me, it ended up being a way mm -hmm. to better serve my community because I don't charge people for the most part um, when it comes to providing this information, having these talks, doing this kind of work, because I did this so then you wouldn't have to go and suffer a bigger bill by being blindsided by the industry where they weaponize the most awful point in your life. It's it's coded in, oh, well, don't you want to show them respect? Don't you want them to like rest comfortably forever? I'm like, well, they're going to decay no matter what you stick them in. So right. this is, you know, that's what really led me down the path was a lot of self-study a lot of experiential things going on and ultimately seeing that people were starting to do that work, but I didn't feel like it was being done in the way that better supported people that look like me. Mm. So I, I want to talk about the ritual for a second. And in that study, 
it, it is one of those like real cultural flashpoints for different groups of people around the world. And it's such an indicator of how people choose to live in relation to each other. Like, I think you're the, the like puritanical politeness, uh, you know, puritanical in the grave is really like something to point out. But even beyond that, um, as you began to study and explore, uh, were there any particular traditions you found that weren't ones you had experienced that really spoke to you or rang true or even just continued to open your eyes up that, that like have stuck with you? I think it's every, every anthropologist's favorite is the Tibetan sky burial. And it is a several day long process wherein your body, when you pass is left outside and someone called a body breaker essentially seasons your body and they break you up and then you're taken to the the plane where you're laid out and the vultures essentially feast on you and it's a sky burial because they do end up taking you up and people actively watch participate in this and it was a little bit like grounding in a sense that it was so practical at the same time because the vultures do need to eat something and they can't build a pyre because they don't have any like growth of trees to build a pyre. It would be wasteful to do that. So cremation isn't an option. And the ground is more often than not so frozen over that they could never dig. So, you know, mm. we we in Western, you know, civilization will like, well, we'll find a way to dig a hole no matter what. <laughs> So like, like it was a, a, yeah, some whole digging motherfuckers, man. <laughs> right, the whole thing dig a about. hole, right? To dig the biggest hole, <laughs> dig a hole to then fill it again. Could have just not dug a hole. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, how incredibly practical! You realize that you can't just, you know, you, you don't have like our technology where we would probably like send the army out to dig a hole, but. <laughs> you know right it's just so humanizing and and like not wasteful so in a sense like i know this can't be done everywhere and i would not want to appropriate that because there's deep religious you know roots to that but the fact that it is so ritualistic where you spend time with the body the entire way through and then it's given up back to nature in that sense is something so powerful to me. And I myself don't think I want that in particular, but learning about it and realizing that there are other ways to be was very affirming and made me more curious about what else people do. Mm. Yeah. I, I think the identification of, of ritual that's very like place-based, right? Like that ritual emerged because those were the needs of that community, right? That's the ground was hard and there were no trees. So, you know, this is what you do, you know, just to bring me into it for a second. Uh, like it was ritual around losing family members that like even brought me back to any faith-based ritual or religious ritual at all. Cause it felt like to that point, like the first time that it was useful and I was glad to be able to have something to reach for. Right. So that doesn't have to be religious. It could be a whole bunch of things. But for me, it happened to be. And it was like, oh, there are thousands of years of people trying to figure out how to give people what they need in this moment. And for me, what they built works uh, or helps. And, and I want to kind of bring that to the present where whether it's religious or not, so many of the practices around death have been kind of, if not frozen, then discontinued because of this pandemic even just in my anecdotal conversations with people, the like one of the deep, like tragic irony horrors of this moment in people's minds is the fact that they can't bury their family member or they can't be there when they die. Um, and, and so for you, what are you seeing in this moment that feels like a rupture, but also what are you seeing in this moment that might be kind of a catalyst to get people rethinking how uh, how to how to process and how to grieve. Yeah. I think it's been democratizing in a sense. There's either direct cremation, so that could be done right now quickly and then there could always be a service after if that's what you elect. That really hasn't changed terribly much. In cases like 
New York. New York already has kind of a monopoly on how many crematories are allowed to be created because they only really allow like one crematory per graveyard or something. Like you had to have like these connections so they created a monopoly on it. That's why it's so expensive to die in New York. A really, really old boys club. (laughs) Yeah. um, Even before the pandemic, they actually were already overwhelmed. So it was not uncommon to actually move somebody to like New Jersey to get cremated. And then they bring them back and say, oh, here's your grandfather. Wait, that... Wait, wait. I know there's <laughs> yeah. so much we have to get to, but I, I I really can't understand. Are you saying in New York there's a legal limit to the amount of spaces where people can be cremated because we don't trust the practice or because we it's a promotion of like traditional Christian ritual and like that that is that just is blowing my mind. Wait, yeah. What, what, what are um, you telling me right now? <laughs> there is a a monopoly sort of thing going on. It, it's like the supply and demand thing. You know, if Amazon buys up all the bookstores, then they could like charge more because there's not really as many options. Mm-hmm. So, if you limit it to, oh, you want to run a crematory, but you also need to have like a graveyard kind of thing, or like, oh, you want to have a funeral home, but you can't just have a funeral home. It has to correspond with uh, a cemetery or some kind of plot. If you want to do natural burial, that ends up being very expensive to do. (laughs) That's why corporate funeral businesses will end up being the people that could actually buy out another smaller struggling funeral home. You don't really see like, like leak funeral home on the South side is not going to be able to save everybody. (laughs) They're they're doing well. And they've been immensely supportive of providing low cost options to everyone in Chicago. But as of the, you know, there's just so many people that were already dying of other causes. And, you know, New York was right there at the hub of everything. So they were overwhelmed. So it, it really exposed the shoddy structure of how they, yeah. of their death practices, because it's so expensive mm-hmm. to die in New York. And, and it just, it takes away so much of the metaphor that, that I think folks like us have to use of like capitalism and death making, but like to actually be thinking about and hearing actual death capitalism is, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting lost for my words, but like, this is, this is so profound that our society and that our life cycle is not disconnected from the system that mandates and controls our day-to-day practices, right? Like the the fact that there's profit mart or um, corporate consolidation uh, in a an industry, like even using the word industry, like all of these things are just like provoking my spirit in such a way that I think why your work is so valuable is that most of us would rather avoid how I'm feeling right now or just displace or not talk about it until it's too late and then you have no options. And so, yeah, that's just like really overwhelming to, sure. to and process. What, what I bring it back to, you know, I go back to my why. I also do anti-racism work in the art institution that I work for. And that's something that I think we often forget about. We know it's important to dismantle white supremacy, but we can have a hard time thinking about what world we want to live in when we do this work. You know, it can't just be being mad <laughs> in a room and saying to, you know, our white cis colleagues, hey, can you not, can you not oppress me? Like that isn't, <laughs> that's not going to lead to anything productive. And it may be momentarily satisfying to get that angst out. But where's the joy that you're getting from that work? Because it's going to be hard to do. You need to find like an endpoint that moves you towards that. So it is a painful conversation to initiate and people's heads start spinning. And I feel for them because there's so much to talk about with death and dying and planning a funeral, especially in Chicago and the Midwest. There's still that aspect of, I know it's overwhelming, but if you suffer a bit now, then your family members don't have to argue with a slightly pompous funeral director if you were to (laughs) very quickly pass. And, you know, the pandemic is teaching, is really highlighting how it's not good. I didn't, I never liked this. Like, oh, it's only hurting the at-risk people, the immunocompromised and the elderly. I'm like, I didn't want to lose my grandmother to coronavirus. (laughs) Like she was a she's a sturdy woman. I don't want to lose her to anything right now. Um, you know the the disposability of people that are not useful is awful. So it's really highlighting that 
we have that kind of attitude and we approach death that way. Like it's kind of something that you deserve, which is not true. It is showing by so many younger people now being impacted and dying from COVID-19 that we we think that we're vul- we're invulnerable and nothing could hurt us and we're fine. But, you know, as we're seeing with like lockdown measures, you know, there are still young people dying. Um, the young people that are essential workers or predominantly people of color are being afflicted the most right now. How we police people when it comes to lockdown message in Chicago. Like I saw people having whole parties in the middle of the street after they said, don't do that. <laughs> and they have to like, it was nothing. They're like, oh, well, they're on their balcony and I'm over here. We're distancing. I'm like, you're, you're part of the problem. And, you know, you could just have a black body and walk around Rogers Park at the wrong time and the cops will stop you. And the fact that we are still heavily policing bodies in a particular way still puts those bodies at risk. You could die of reasons other than the coronavirus right now just because of, you know, police brutality. Yeah. So in looking at kind of the conversations that you're seeing uh, or are in around specifically uh, people figuring out uh, one, their own approach to the possibility of of dying, but also like, how do you adapt for family members when you can't be there? How do you move through this? What are some of the meaningful and useful things that you've heard or you've been thinking about to help people who are feeling a little bit frozen in that disconnect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as far as kind of grounding the conversation initially, I do send out any kind of death planning documents in advance so they could look over it and get a sense of what we may be talking about. And I steer the conversation to beginning with what these things mean and kind of dispelling a lot of that kind of intimidating legal language that's really just who do you want to say, you know, yes or no, if we pull the plug, if you die and who should be the backup or who is the one that's in charge of your money when all is said and done, because that gets more complicated if you're unmarried or don't have those kinds of documents in order. It becomes easier for like next of kin or family members that you're estranged from to kind of come in and then take over. And then anything that you may not want ends up happening for sure. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that a lot with um, the LGBTQ community. A lot of trans people get dead named in obituaries or you know, inappropriate pronouns are used for them after death, or if the family is wholly responsible, then they may be presented at a funeral in like women's clothing or with a wig. And it's incredibly disrespectful. But I I do lay out in kind of more of a structural, like, let's just go step by step with what everything means and how it could relate to them personally in advance. And the conversation ends up being more about walking them through from what it would be if you were in a hospital situation into what does a funeral mean for you? And who would you want to be the kind of core person? Who do you not want to be there at all? I love that question. (laughs) Because in many ways, uh, we, we did have an exercise in my certification program where a drunk relative so shows up that they never wanted to talk to or see ever again. And they're like, I'm supposed to be here for the funeral. And you're supposed to make sure that they understand that they cannot be there. Kind of walking them mm-hmm. through everything and also kind of highlighting just because we cannot physically gather together right now doesn't mean that there aren't other meaningful ways for us to honor people that have passed. You know, Zoom is kind of where we all live right now. <laughs> how we gather. Um, Some people do get a lot out of just shining a camera on their deceased relative in an empty funeral home, just because it feels as close as what they can get. Some people feel like they would rather kind of keep them in a refrigeration kind of unit until they can get even like five people safely together and then move on to having a funeral of some sort. Some people are okay with the temporary burial option where you would later be able to exhume and then place them where you would want to place them. Cause you really can't, mm. they're, they're not really operating cemeteries in quite the same way right now, just out of safety precautions. Wow. I mean, 
as has been the case this whole conversation and when I've heard you talk before, the like, I, I always go to the like kind of mystical and you always go to the very practical because that's actually the realm yeah, where your yeah. work lives. Uh, <laughs> I want to, I want to, I'm going to take one more shot at the mystical, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it'll end up back where, where you are. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the main reasons why I really wanted to talk to you in, in this series is because I think, you know, one of the things that's emerged for us is the disconnect between ideas of the individual and the need to live collectively. And I think so often we talk about grief as an individual process or a small unit process, but we know that, or I'm starting to really embody and understand the ways that grief is a collective process. And that can mean with your family, your community, or, or even I feel like what we're seeing right now is this large scale collective grief in various ways that I think people have very little, you know, we're, we're ill-equipped to learn how to go through that process, uh, especially when it feels abstract or distant uh, or what we're grieving isn't the loss of someone's life. It's the loss of our assumptions about what our life looked like or, or all those kinds of things. So I'm wondering, it's a very broad question. How are you seeing grief playing out right now beyond just the individual and maybe from your study or just from your practice, like where is the transformative potential of moving from an individual to a collective grief process? Yeah. What really drove me into realizing how wrong, like how poorly we treat people that grieve is that just psychologically, because we've built this whole narrative around how you just get over things in a linear way in, you know, our day-to-day lives, because you just have to move on eventually. Nine months is when people tend to kind of start to lose patience is like, that there's a hard number around this phenomenon where like nine months people are kind of worrying about you. And it's when some psychologists may worry that there's something going on with you. And yeah. again, that- like, look, you could have had a baby. You could have had a baby by now, <laughs> you know, get over it. Yeah. Instead of incubating your grief, why not incubate life? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that, you know, both in a literal and figurative way, they, they do mean that. So yeah, they do feel like there's like an actual perfectly linear incubation period. But like going back to ritual, like so much in that first year is just kind of living without somebody. And then the next year is realizing that those rituals still don't include them. We're all Mm -hmm. so spread out that it could be perfectly natural for Easter not to include an uncle. And then the next Easter comes around. It's like, wow, they're really not there. Or you may catch yourself still kind of thinking that they'll be there. I feel like there is that individualistic thing where you may be inclined to kind of keep that inside and not bring that out and talk to other people about it. I feel like there's a lot of space right now to talk about people that had passed that have been dead for a while. We have the capacity to potentially be more connected to people. I have talked to my best friend during quarantine more than I've ever talked to her. I don't think I have ever called her as much or talked to her on a weekly basis as much as I have lately. And mm-hmm. it's been an immensely grounding thing. I feel like this really drives home that sure, we may be physically distant, but we rely on that social connection. It doesn't have to be Christianity. It doesn't have to be a sky burial. It doesn't have to be many things, but going through that liminal period of like, really sitting with something and the full weight of it and then being around it with the people reminds you that you may have lost somebody, but you have gained more community because now you only have each other. There's so much to that that we were already so-so about doing (laughs) pre-pandemic. I I think (laughs) it's really shining a light on how we do have to be a lot more direct or communicative about difficult feelings that we have, or even trying to unpack feelings that we don't even understand. So much of grief Mm -hmm. is like nuanced, or there's the whole fact that like, so much of depression isn't like crying or lying in bed all day, like a awful commercial. It's like, I stared at a wall for an hour, and I lost track of time. Or I feel kind of low, and like, I don't really feel much. But I know that I feel mad at what's happening on the news. The, the fact that it's so layered and complicated is kind of the nature of it. And I feel like 
in order to just maintain a sense of survival, we need to talk to each other more about it and be more open than we have been. Yeah. I, I'm, I really recognize some, one that was a lot. So thank you <laughs> for, for, for all of your thoughts. Sure. Uh, but one of the things you said was um, this time, and I'm feeling like even outside of pandemic, but this time in general, uh, I'm seeing much more of that grief of someone who has previously passed or who has, um, you know, been dead for, for, you know, more than that nine month period. And a lot of it is actually because of our like technological reality. It feels like in some ways over the last few years, we've become like super skeptical about social media tools and digital communication and like the way in which it fractures us or, you know, tracks our information. Uh, but one of the things I didn't really process until hearing you speak is what I see much more is somebody can do a Facebook post or Instagram post on the birthday of their parent or their grandparent when they lost them, right? And like seven to 10 years ago, you would just be experiencing that in your body, right? Like we didn't have platform to be able to express or to be able to get 15 comments of condolences, you know, even if it's not something that happened immediately. Um, and so there's really this like this tension of feeling like our society is like decaying and, and separating from itself. Uh, but also you're, you're, you kind of are highlighting um, some of these reconnective structures that like our new capacities are allowing which is really interesting for me. Uh, and then I want to lead that into a question ab about you. I, in movement work, right, like a lot of the work that I do, and this was actually a struggle for me to recognize, was in response to death, right? Like there is a death happening. Um, we need to go protest. There's death happening. We need to create programs. Um, there's torture happening. We need to show up and name this. And it was becoming really, really heavy <laughs> to recognize that, like, I would be depressed all the time and then somebody would die tragically in the news and I felt responsible and enlivened to go respond. And it made me have to start questioning, like, wait, what all we do is about life and death. And these are bigger sacred processes. This is more than just about racism, right? Like, this is more than just about our political structure. This is actually the central fabric of our humanity. This is existence itself, right? Um, and so I hear you naming doing this work outside of traditional religious context, outside of the Christian context. It's obviously grounded in Puerto Rico, which then I uh, imagine there's some, you know, Santeria, but also Taino indigenous pra practices all woven up in there. Uh, but you living outside of this norm, having this transformative relationship to death, which is everything. Um, how has that changed the way you live and move through the world? I, I definitely feel like as it's really sunken in for me that I won't live forever. I feel like I am simultaneously more careful and more courageous. Mm. I, I feel like there's that kind of back and forth sense of, I feel like I was always working before the pandemic, <laughs> like just with work. And I also had a job in the beer industry. It's not really gone so much as I can't serve beer right now. <laughs> um, there, there's just like the simplicity of being able to decide to sit on your patio with someone you love and then share a beer, especially one that you may have made. You know, these are all decisions. And sometimes in life, you can't control outside things. But it's kind of helped me to be able to continuously check in with like, what can I actively control? And what is outside of that? And Am I trying to force control in something a little bit too hard because it feels like the world is changing so quickly that I have to grab onto something? I definitely feel like I am more likely to want to explore more ideas and be more open-minded and take better care of myself. I still have a fear of bodily harm and illness, of getting injured as anybody might, I feel like it hasn't necessarily made me feel like I'm indestructible or anything. I don't feel like I'm too fragile either. I think it's more that I feel like I can take a step back more often and engage with how I might be doing today may not be how I'm doing next week, even down to like, I do maintain a yoga practice. And that's like a very spiritual thing for me. It's not just physical. But you know, it's all about honoring what you and your body feel up for doing at that given moment. So maybe I could have done a handstand like last month. Now I'm going to lie down for half of the session <laughs> and 
the, the breath work will be yoga and I will feel better for it. So, you know, honoring where you are and knowing what you can prepare for and doing that work when you can and you have the space for it has definitely been something I've let replenish myself when I'm feeling low and just kind of give myself over to when I know that I can't do anything more. Sometimes you can't do anything else. I think that's wonderful reminders all the time and for anyone in this moment. Um, But I think especially for people who are really like, you know, I have people in my life who I think have been really struggling with that. Like things feel so out of control right now and not that they don't always, but particularly right now. So then when it's things that you feel like you can control to protect yourself, those become very heightened and very important, you know, and it can become to the point of like a compulsion. And, And so being able to take that step back and say like, what is needed here for me to be okay right now, not what will prevent me not being okay in the future. I think is really, Mm. really useful. Um, I do just want to kind of ground it back in now and in that idea of grieving for more than an individual or a family member. Because I think, yeah, I just think that that's something if I were a listener, I would maybe be intrigued by. Is there any language or framework for grieving the change of our world in this that you think Uh, has been useful for you or could be useful for other people because I really think that that's a lot of the people who are still bar bar crawling or people who are haven't left their house in three months you know so much of this is about uh, whether it's denial or depression like all these different processes that come up in trying to figure out how to grieve this loss of what we thought our being was or our doing what you know we stop doing all the things that we do that make us us but we're still here what what do you think is useful or what has been useful for you in that process? Yeah, I think there there is not just the grief that we feel from a loss of life. We we grieve having a framework that is sustainable and makes sense for us and for many people provided an external source of like validation like a, a lot of us go on autopilot and we keep working and trucking along to suddenly have removed, you know, whether it's working from home or being furloughed or no longer being able to go and participate in things in groups that added value to your life. You know, that's all a very quick loss that comes from the outside that you have to then navigate around. You know, it it's like a phantom limb feeling in a sense of like, you think that you could just fall back onto it because it's rhythmic, but then it's just not there anymore. Or kind of the realization of, oh, I, I'm i running late. It's like, well, what am I running late for? <laughs> so there is like the, the kindness and the patience that you have to have with yourself. Um, you know, the five stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, thinking that you could like negotiate for like, oh, what if I just see some people? Um, acceptance is something that we hop back to. And what I know in my work is that the five stages of grief don't exist the way that they were written. We, we thought it was going to be a nice linear thing. And if you're a healthy person, you'll just get through it in nine months and then you'll make a baby in nine months. <laughs> Speaking of yoga, you'll have a happy baby. It'll be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll have a happy baby. And then, yeah, it's great. Um, Yeah, no, exactly. I feel like so much of that kind of grief work bleeds so well into just surviving shelter in place. You know, we don't know how long it's going to last. We know that we're already going through changes and there's really no knowing how we're going to feel years down the line. Will it feel like it was only a month? Will it feel like we participated in a war? Like, what is it going to do for people? And I think so much of that hinges on the level of openness that you're able to have with your community, like the people that you can lean on and also being mindful about who maybe you don't tell certain people some things. I don't talk about how I'm emotionally doing with this with my mother very much because I know she's not having a good time with it and she can't help but project something onto me then. <laughs> Moms be projecting. <laughs> they, that they do. It's like, oh, you have all this free time and you're able to enjoy, in a sense, 
having more space to enjoy the things or like read books again, why don't you get a degree online? <laughs> I'm like, or I could not. <laughs> yeah, it's a bold time to matriculate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so I think I have one. I hope it's brief question that that they can can get close to winding us down. Um, and maybe I'll give you flexibility to be able to take it one or two ways. But it's pretty simple for me. Um, so I'm just really fascinated and grateful to be hearing about your work to be able to be in conversation with you. Um, and so for folks who are hearing this, maybe never thought of this or had heard of it and were interested in taking steps um, in doing this work. What are some of those steps people should take? What what could or should that look like? And if that's a little too technical, if folks don't want to be like a formal doula, what type of preparedness should they be doing for just their community and their family as we are all like on the edge and vulnerable right now? Sure. Um I can kind of find an in-between. I think... I, um, I could make do, a choice. Do, I'm sorry. Yeah. That no, no, you. you're good. <laughs> I'm indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's so much to talk about with the subject. So it is very easy. This could have easily been a two-hour-long conversation. Easily. <laughs> yeah, very easily. Um, I, I went through the journey of kind of having a very broad sense of self-study. So the academic, like, historical aspects are really important to me. Um. I think it creates very good context for the kind of work that I'm trying to do now. I feel like we are kind of bringing to the forefront a lot of other hidden history around the funeral industry that's very telling about kind of where we could go next. So in a sense, like you could start broad if you're kind of interested in everything, but you really know where to begin and it'll kind of help you hone in on what actually matters to you. If you know that you do want to hold space with people I've left plenty of talks and had an older gentleman like hobble over to me and say, will you be there with me when I die? And I say, sir, I have a job (laughs) (laughs) that I literally have to go to now. I took time off work to do this. So Um, unless you can schedule it during my lunch break. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, To hold that space with you. Um, Kind of finding what makes sense for you and where you want to lean into it it is more than okay for this to be healing work that you also get something out of like self-interest wise. Like I learned that it is very difficult for me to just sit with a stranger and take care of them the whole way through for weeks. So I know that about me, it is deeply draining and it's something that I feel I can best do for family and something that I can better teach people how to do for their families and communities. So as far as like that process, every state has different laws around advanced directive planning. There are a number of websites like get your shit together. (laughs) It's very straightforward. Just get it together. And if you want to do the paperwork part on your own and then kind of rope folks in to create a conversation like, hey, I did this and I want you to know, I would like to support you in doing it in case you haven't done it. So it could be as simple as like being the one who initiate and then bringing someone in and kind of keeping kind of a chain of effect going where people help inspire others to do that kind of work. So you yourself don't have to necessarily go and be a midwife. You don't have to go and get the training. Part of why I got the training is so people could know that they could come to me and I would provide detailed information. And part of why I kind of secularize what I do is because I don't want to project on anybody. We'll leave that up to mom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I, I would love to sit and chant with you. Would you chant with me? And I'll say, okay, I may do it wrong, but just be patient with me. (laughs) Yeah. So it's all about kind of reflecting back to somebody what is going to be meaningful Mm. for them. So I kind of, I I let them steer. I would rather kind of be more blank slate and provide like a set structure and kind of wherever you want to go from there. I'm more than happy to help someone with that journey. It could be as simple as like help coach me to talk to my mom about her will. (laughs) That's a big one. <laughs> As opposed yeah. to like, this is the right way to go through this process. Follow my step, you know, because that's in some ways just as prescriptive as what, you know, the this industry is doing. Exactly. Uh, beautiful. So last question, it's a two-parter. How can folks uh, 
find out more and support you in your work? And two, what's something that you've been doing in the midst of this pandemic uh, that's been helping you be more okay? Uh, So I do have a website that I will be launching, um, Formidable CG. I will send that to you all so that you have that uh, to link to for folks. Um, And as far as what I'm doing, you know, meditation really has been that. I participated in a crystal sound bath and I there's that in between where I know that some people get a lot out of it. Some people walk away like I wasted my time listening to some bowls ring. For me, it triggered a lot of emotion out of nowhere. Like I thought it was fine. I was not fine, apparently. And I don't know how much I fully believe in each layer of what each bowl symbolizes and aligns or anything. And I'm open to doing more of that research for understanding for myself. But I feel like every day, I play on YouTube a crystal sound something and I close my eyes and I don't look at a screen and I just kind of let that be my world for a while and kind of enjoy whatever kind of reset that was because that's kind of what I needed in that moment. Am I grounded? Am I energized? Do I need a nap now? Well, we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Dame, have you ever done a sound bath? A little bit. I've done, you know, at Breathing Room, we've had some some sound healing and some s- sessions. I am deeply such. a fan. They felt more like showers <laughs> than baths. I don't feel like I really. <laughs> you just it was it was a sound spritz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sprinkled up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we got to get you in the tub. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emmy, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts, your work, your your experiences, and yourself. Um, you mentioned the website. Anywhere else folks can go to find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Sure. Uh, I do have an Instagram where I talk about this stuff on occasion. La Zurda Chai with um, little underscores under underneath. That's another great place where I feel like I kind of keep more of the discourse going more so than on Facebook right now. Perfect. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm Damon underscore AF. And we will be back on the line showcasing someone else reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hit me! Rosie. Daniel. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous Uh earlier, but Mm -hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. Them staring directly <laughs> into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully non-committal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye. <laughs>